tells the whole park. It tells her everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. I do never, ever get tired of that intro. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Some days, feels like all you can do is watch worlds burn. This is especially true in the desperate small towns that pocket the parts of America some derisively call flyover country. Today on Cyber, we've got something special. Motherboard is publishing a book. It's called Terraform. It drops on August 16th. It's a collection of short stories about the near future and the dystopian present. With me today on the show are the book's editors, Claire L. Evans and Brian Merchant, as well as guest, a special guest, Tim Morn. He's the author of the novel Infinite Detail and the Terraform story, Flyover Country. Terraform's stories are all about possible futures. Flyover Country is a window into one of those worlds, one that may seem unpleasantly familiar. Here's Tim with an excerpt of that story now. Walk to the Foxconn CCA Joint Correctional Manufacturing Facility takes me about 20 minutes on the interstate. Traffic is pretty much non-existent apart from the cabless trucks that draw for me as they pass, kicking up clouds of, clouds of pale dust that scour my eyes with grit. Gate security is bullshit as always. They barely care. Lazily rummaging through my bags, I stand in the body scanner, feet on the markings, arms bent above my head. They pull out the phone, put in an RFID tag baggie to pick up at the end of my shift and slightly hand me back my bag. Miguel is the shift's manager's desk. He gives me some gruff bullshit about getting in earlier in future, about how I should turn up ready to go in my ovals while guiltily avoiding making eye contact. Stay cool, Miguel. He checks the rotor on his tablet, tells me I've been assigned to production line 3B, building 7, motherboard assembly. Of course, I know all this already. I duck through dormitory 6 as a shortcut, weaving through the endless rows of bunk beds. Artificial light filters down through suicide nets and sprays a slowly undulating checkerboard across the plastic floor. Everyone in here is in green ovals. Voluntary. On shift breaks, they sit around on their bunks or on plastic chairs, talking, playing cards, watching a noble war on the huge TVs that line the dorm. It's the episode where Baron and Beatrice get married on the bridge of the USS Teal, just after they put down a socialist uprising on Phobos. I remember the episode, season four, I think. Baron still has his real arm. I used to love this shit back in high school. I keep walking. The dorm is a fucking shithole. It's dirty and smells of ass and body stink. If this is where they put the voluntary workers, I don't want ever to see how bad things are for the actual inmates. I shudder at the thought of choosing to be stuck here, but I get it. I've got no kids. I'm lucky. My universal basic income still covers my rent, just about. I pass a guy that looks my age, stripped to the waist, lying on his bunk. Chest splattered with random, uncoordinated tattoos, like stickers on the kids' lunchbox. He stares up through the suicide nets, into dull fluorescent lighting. His eyes are moving. They're but fucking grace of God. I find an empty locker and open it, cram my bag in. Checking over my shoulders for guards or drones, I reach inside and tear the band-aid away from the inside of my ovals, and palm it and the chip into my pocket. I step back and pull the ovals on over my clothes, slip on the paper face mask and hairnet, and head outside. Relief to escape the smell. I move quickly through the courtyard, running late. Again, the bodies I weave through are all sealed in green ovals, but on the other side of the three-story chain-lick fence, I can see red and blue clothed figures, convicts and illegal residents. I keep my eyes down as I move. 
not wanting to catch the mirror-shaded gaze of the guards in the towers or the dead twitching eyes of the drones that hang in the hot, still air. Inside Building 7, the chain fence runs right through the interior, cleaving the production line in two. Green overalls on my side, red and blue on the other. The dank, mildew smell of almost failing AC. Today I'm on motherboard assembly. A constant stream of naked iPhones come down the conveyor belt to me, their guts exposed. As each one passes, I clip in a missing chip. 256 gigabit storage chips from a box covered in Chinese lettering. One every 10 seconds. Six a minute. 360 an hour. 4,320 a shift. After me, the line snake away, disappearing through a hole in the chain link into the hands of reds and blues. At the station next to me, a slender matte black robot arm twitches, snapping video chips into the motherboards. It is relentless, undistracted, untiring. Given half a chance, Foxconn would replace us all, but then they'd lose all those special benefits the president promised them for coming here in the first place. The 10-year exemption on income and sales tax. The exemption on import tariffs for components. The exemptions from minimum wages. The exemption on labour rights. The protection against any form of legal action from employees or inmates. The exemption from environmental protection legislation. And Apple? Well, without me standing here, clipping one Chinese-made component into another Chinese-made component, Apple loses the right for a robot in Shenzhen to laser engrave, made in the USA, but a great American worker, into every iPhone casing before they're shipped over here. Cheers. Well, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, let me just, I, that was, it's, it's, I mean, I've read this story a number of times first when we edited it, uh, back in, what was it? 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been six years, I guess. Wow. Um, and then get you know, recreationally and then (laughs) for putting it together into this, uh, into the anthology, which if there was, there's a handful of stories that we just kind of knew immediately that we're going to go into this, um, volume and this was one of them uh and and it's i I think it's pretty obvious why even from that extract it just um you know it just hits all of sort of the 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 targets that we look for in a in a sort of speculation that terraform does and i should say we also knew that we wanted to have tim as our first guest because uh i think i i i i was looking at the numbers i couldn't crunch them exactly like with any specificity but i think you have contributed more stories to terraform than any other writer uh you're just such an integral part of the voice and sort of the mode of speculation the thing that we're trying to do here um you've just been such an important part of uh, of our project uh and i it, it seems so fitting to kick it off with you so first of all thanks for all the speculations over the years <laughs> and Second, thanks for for being here today. Um, thanks for having me, man. It's a it's a, it's a huge like honor to be here for your first one of these. Thank you. And it was I, I like I think I wrote like five stories for you guys over the years. I used to do the Christmas thing. I did that like three years, I think, or something. Four. Was four, it we four? Did, we had a little Christmas tradition for four four, four. years. Yeah, you did four days. Of, oh uh, yeah, Christmas is the first thing you wrote for us, which was sort of. More of like kind of a vignette, you know, a series of vignettes about, you know, the the constellation of it was less like a 
futuristic speculation as more of like snapshots about you know how our Christmas gets made from like the assembly worker in um, you know making the, the 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 cheap plastic goods that show up under the Christmas tree, and then people combing the landfill and 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 after after the cycle's done and people experiencing the Christmas so. Um, there's, there's that one. And then you did last Christmas, which was like a really brutal <laughs> sort of climate. That's apocalypse. my favorite thing I think I've written for you guys, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That was we great. came very close to including that one in the anthology. It was really between that one and flyover country, but flyover country is so definitively terraform in mood and in references and the sort of subject that it tackles. It's, I mean, it had to be the one. Can we back Think up about, for, sorry, can we back up for one second? Can we explain what, what is terraform? What is that boot yeah. that we are that we are seeking? Like, how did it end up on motherboard? Yeah, well, yeah. Next, you for Claire. I'll let you handle that one. Well, we can talk about it both. Uh, we we launched terraform in 2014 as a kind of destination for short term, short form speculations that were drawing from or inspired by or riffing off of the kinds of stories that our colleagues, our journalist colleagues were writing about on motherboard stories about tech and, you know, late capitalism and all the things that we know and love. Um, And it was a way of kind of getting into those stories sideways and sometimes in a deeper way or imagining the implications of some things that were happening. Uh, We often tapped writers who maybe had never even written fiction before, who who were journalists or were experts in different fields and we had a pretty quick turnaround time, you know, like we have some a story drops, um, we want a speculative response to it pretty short term. So it's a lot of these sort of frenzied imaginations of, of what could happen next um, in the next you know few moments after um, something important comes along and changes the conversation. And, you know, we've, we've, we did it every week for many years. And now we have an anthology that cumulatively looking at it, you know, like when you're in the trenches, maybe you don't necessarily know what the overall tone of something is, but when you have it in hand in an anthology, you can really get a sense of the voice um, of of a group of writers thinking about these subjects together. It's, I think, um, dystopian, but not apocalyptically so, if that makes sense. Like, we're talking about a lot of dark subjects, for sure. There's lots of climate change and, you know, police surveillance and, you know, prison industrial complex and uh, all kinds of things. But at the same time, you know, the the very act of examining those things, I think is hopeful. Um, That's what science fiction does. It allows us to think about what could happen and how to prevent the worst case scenario. So I don't think it's a doom and gloom uh, mood necessarily. It's just very aware, very aware and very willing to get into it. The the term that other people have used, critics have used from my work is like, everyday dystopia or, or kitchen sink dystopia. And I think that, that yeah. fits Terraform really well, especially as most of my work's been published for you guys, I think. Right? <laughs> or like a or, or big chunk of it, at least. And I think that, that kind of fits it really well. And that's why I was always exa- excited. All those things you just described, Claire, really are why I was always excited to work for you guys. Like years ago, I always wanted to do this thing where I would write a piece of fiction like once a month or something that was kind of inspired by a new story that month and I never got around to get off my ass and kind of doing it but 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 you guys kind of gave me the opportunity to do that a few times and that's super exciting and it's something I'd love to see you know like more of so it's just it's just it's just very cool to work with you guys on this it was really really rewarding for me thanks yeah. I mean I think this this idea of things being commentary about the press. I think we can all agree that one of the most persistent and annoying myths about science fiction as a genre is this idea that it's somehow meant to be predictive and it has a responsibility to be predictive. Um, I think the closest that science fiction gets to prediction is sort of like 
what William Gibson would have called node spotting, you know, like this. Exactly. I, I think like, you know, Gibson often writes about people who are able to cut through webs of information and find those crucial nodes, uh, things with lasting influence, with impact and kind of trace where those overlaps could meet. And that, that's like kind of what trend forecasting is. And that, to an extent, I think science fiction is a form of trend forecasting, like not the ability to see into the future, but the ability to sense what vectors are going to meet. And I think, you know, in the case of flyover country, it's, you know, it's prisons, it's late capitalism, it's tech, it's manufacturing, like the encounter between all those things to a trained eye, you know, like looks inevitable. But, you know, I think spotting nodes is also a totally non-rational process. Like it's really instinctual. And um, yeah, you're really good at it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's like actually a really good segue to uh, if uh, flyover country as one of those nodes because I think the reason that uh, I know not just we felt it was successful, I know other sort of anthology editors have come knocking, and there's been a lot of talk about this story over the years, um, and rightfully so, is because in its speculative mode, it really helps ground the reader in what's in what's going on now helps folks understand a little bit better or sort of internalize some of the the stress and the desperation um and the 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 complexities around sort of iPhone line manufacturing which is how every single one of us gets our phones in the United States and around the world but it's something that we really don't always do a good job of thinking about or or metabolizing in any meaningful way. Um, so I, I, I'd like to ask you, and I think what we're going to do with this podcast a lot is to sort of, you know, ask uh, what you know what was going on in your mind when you were writing this story. So what are the what are the key uh, sort of components of this story, as it were? Um, and then after we talk about that, we can we can talk about like you know now that it's five or six years later, uh, what, you know, what, what still feels resonant, what feels different now. And there's a lot to talk about, especially in this story. Cause like one of the great things that you always do is you just like load it with, with little details, like in the extract you just read with there's, you know, Baron who's Baron Trump and the USS Teal and it's all, everything is sort of collapsed into these into these like fantasy streaming world tequila tequila shows up as like running so which is maybe that's one of the things that maybe she kind of fell off the map uh but she 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 mentioned the story too uh so yeah so what you know what was your mindset writing this story what were you i know it was sort of at the dawn of the trump era that you wrote this it was also sort of at the cresting of the sort of the Foxconn scandals that, you know, that, that hit at the beginning of the 2010s. Um, and that's in the mix. So yeah, what was your, what, you know, what, what are we thinking as we read the story? It's it's a tough one to explain because it's, it, it, there's a lot and I I could talk for an hour on it and nobody wants that. Um, I I think the initial story, I think you came to me and asked me to write something because Trump had just won, literally just, I think I wrote this, five days after the election or something like that. It was a week after the election tops. And you, you were like, have you got a response for this? And the thing that had been sticking in my head was he made so many preposterous fucking claims during the, the election cycle, right? And one of the big ones was that he's going to bring, force Apple to bring iPhone manufacturing back to the US. And everybody said he can't do that. It's impossible to do that. And it turned out it was, you know, like all of his other things, it was impossible for him to do it in, in one sense, right? Because he didn't do it. Um, obviously, but I, my big obsession, which is the thing I don't want to talk to for too long about, is supply chains and special economic zones. I've done a lot of reporting on that uh, for, for Motherboard, in fact. I wrote an article for Motherboard 
uh, as part of the series I wrote another article for the BBC in 2014 I went to China spent some time on a container ship I went to China with some friends of mine Liam Young and, and Kate Davis and um, we went around looking at manufacturing the whole supply chain in reverse basically um, ended up in in Mongolia looking at rare earth mining and processing but a large chunk of that was looking at, at manufacturing uh, of both electronics and, and sort of crappy plastic goods and stuff but the thing that I got kind of obsessed about that was this concept of a special economic zone, which if very, very quickly, all those things in the story I described, all those regulations, employment rights, tax, environmental stuff, in, in special economic zones, and especially in the Chinese model, the special economic zone, which is the dominant model now, like say somewhere like Shenzhen, which obviously people know as this city that where, where most electronics in the world are manufactured, um, or it was at least. Um, you know, this was a place that in the 1970s was a small fishing village with maybe like 20,000 people living there. And that's one of, it's like the third most populated city in the world, like, like 30 million people or something in, in its surrounding areas. And, and um, that was all because of this, this rezoning of the, of the area so that normal laws, normal communist laws about, about workers' rights and stuff are just suspended in there. And, and it then becomes this massive investment attraction for foreign companies like Apple or whoever to move in and start doing their manufacturing there because they don't have to worry about environmental problems, they don't have to worry about pay, they don't have to worry about workers' rights, uh, they don't have to worry about workers' ages a lot of the time and stuff like this, and all that stuff I described in the story. I was obsessed with this model because I've seen this model spread. Actually, the, It was actually invented in Europe, in Ireland, the model, but China, the one that have propelled it uh, and they've spread it around the world and when i was in shenzhen i was visiting a tv factory and we were given a guided tour they have this little museum and you know in the beginning and in, in the factory that they showed visitors around and in there they had like these screens that were showing video feeds from other factories of theirs and there was one in another two in shenzhen and there was one in somewhere else in china and there was one in bangkok or somewhere in thailand and then there was one in Vietnam, and then there was one in Poland. And I was like, wait, you've got a factory in Poland? And we were like, oh, yeah, we've got several factories in Poland. And I came back and started looking, and Poland's got, like, tens of special economic zones. It's exactly the same. Rules apply. And, they, and Poland's in the EU, right? But in these zones, EU regulations are, are suspended to varying levels. Um, they ship in migrant workers to work in them the same way they do in, in China. And I just suddenly, that just struck me as that's coming to America at some point, right? It really is. And this was years before Trump. And like Claire was talking about seeing these nodes emerge and you see these trends emerge and you try and knock them together. And as soon as I heard Trump talking about um, bringing manufacturing back to the US and all that bullshit that happened in Wisconsin where they tried to build a Foxconn plant, Lots of money was wasted and blah, blah, blah. whole drama happened. I thought, this, this is it. This is, this is the moment that special economic zones might come back, might, might, might start emerging in, in the US. And it became a kind of obsession me in, in a couple of pieces of fiction. Yeah, that's kind of how I got there. But that also combined with, you know, the prison industrial complex in the US, which is something you can't ignore at all when you look at these kind of issues and, and the way, you know, largely African-American labor is used in manufacturing is something that most Americans aren't still are not really aware of the scale of, and it's kind of ter terrifying. So the idea of merging the two just made too much creepy fascistic, uh, like nationalistic sense to me to yeah. do that. 
Um, so yeah. Yeah, it really flows in the story. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and just, we maybe should have said this up front, if it wasn't completely clear, the premise of the story is ultimately that there is, that the protagonist is working in a, he's working on the voluntary side of a Foxconn, of an American Foxconn plant, uh, where it's half, you know, staffed by inmates, by, 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 uh, by prison labor, and, and half is this voluntary, you know, people who work and then go home. Um, and it's about, I don't know if we need to worry about spoilers or anything, but it's kind of about the interplay of the two and sort of the, 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 the tragedies that, that are sort of nested in, in, inside both sides uh, of that, um, that equation. Um, so, so yeah. And I, I think it's a really effective speculation as we get a tour from outside, you know, meeting uh, the 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 wife and child of of one of the 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 imprisoned laborers, uh, and through our protagonist, who's clearly just sort of like bearing the burden of this sort of work a day half sort of he's got this hustle doing a good doing a good thing sort of connecting uh, those imprisoned laborers with their with their families, but he's also just sort of like just you know, he's ready for it all to keeps talking about just watching the whole. Uh, this, having this fantasy almost of the whole place just kind of collapsing under his feet and the, the, an earthquake swallowing swallowing the whole world. So uh, I, that I kind of connected just from knowing you and knowing you're right, just with, with sort of that's the five days after Trump kind of, you know, mindset, right? Like that it really did feel to a lot of people that, uh, you know, that, that, that the whole world could be could be swallowed up and maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Um all right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking around. We are on talking with Brian Merchant, Claire L. Evans, and Tim Morn about the new book Terraform and Tim's story within it, Flyover Country. Here's Brian asking Tim another question. What to you sort of has aged successfully and what, you know, which of these sort of speculations, if you are writing this now, might you uh, re-examine? That's a good question. I, so I have a kind of slight different kind of take on this stuff, and Claire kind of touched on it a bit and, and when she was talking about Terraform as well. I don't worry about my stories dating. It's, in fact, I want them to date in a worse sense because I'm kind of interested in... Well, my stuff is very much about the moment in which it's written. I'm deliberately set out to do that. If you know that, like, kind of like Claire said, you know, all science fiction is really about the present. You know, I kind of seize that and, and make that a thing, right? And, and I, it's true now. You can go back and read science fiction from the 70s, 60s, whenever, and, and the good stuff stands out not because it was prescient, but because it caught that moment really well. Yeah. Um, so I'm yeah, quite, happy. I'm quite think- happy for my stuff to date. Do you know what I mean? I wrote a story last year for 
MIT Tech Review, which is about Andrew Yang winning winning the London, you know, the New York Mayor thing. Motherfucker didn't even come in third, right? You know, thank, thank God. Although the guy they ended up with is far worse, potentially, maybe who knows? Anyway, but but you know that it was about that moment and 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 his weird tech solutionism fucking approach to to the greatest city in the world. Um, and and it was kind of. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm happy for things to date that way because it, it's it's okay. it's like a, a time capsule, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do think that it is. So the the one thing that I would say is like I think that I think that for what we do, like a hundred percent, that is it is all about sort of using this as a tool to sort of interrogate the the present and sort of possible futures in, in this way. I would add that like I think that that has also become kind of like the dominant sort of. And I and I, somebody like Kim Stanley Robinson would push back against that, and I heard him talking on another uh, a, a podcast or something, saying that you know, like we do, we shouldn't like totally abandon science fiction for its predictive capacities because something like the Ministry for the Future, you know, he really is trying to sort of use science fiction as a tool to lay out and i don't think that a roadmap for you know what one possible or something that people can glom onto and say okay this is a possibility of course what he does is completely different than i think what what terraform usually does but i do think that it's it's interesting at least to go back and sort of critique those works from the 70s and say why were they thinking this and like how would that particular sort of device look if it were sort of rolled out today we can learn about like changing attitudes we can learn about sort of you know even like the, the sort of modes of criticism which which stuck and when which were effective and which um so yeah no it's not to i i think like saying like well that story got it wrong forget it like is a really dumb way of looking at a story but it is still interesting to me anyways to go back through sort of like these visions of the future's past right and 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 sort of uh, comb through them. So that's why I asked the question. I'm just curious, like, what you're, as you sit with the story now, like, what do you, well, maybe that's a better way to ask it. Like, as you sit with the story now, sort of like, what, what, what do you, what do you see, in, you know, in, in, in that speculation? Uh, like, that, what, what, does it still retain the same level of relevance to you? Does it still resonate the same way to you? Yeah, I think, the, I think there's stuff in there that does. I think the stuff about prison labor just hasn't gone away, right? You know, we didn't, we got rid of Trump and, 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 you know, we've got a president that's putting 100,000 more cops on the street. Yeah. Doesn't seem like a massive fucking victory to me. Um, you know, and, and the racialization of that, which is hinted at in the story in various ways, though I don't, I don't dump into it, jump into it. Being a white guy is probably not the best place for me to be, but, you know, I couldn't ignore that at the same time. That stuff's still very much there, I think, uh, and it's still very much real. Um, and, and the other thing about this, right, is this looks like an unrealistic story in the US, but it's everyday life in, in large parts of the world and has been for, like, getting on for 40 years now, right? And, and you know, this, this is, like, I'm talking describing dormitories in here, and I've given them a kind of American flavour and, and stuff, but I've visited dormitories in, in Shenzhen, right, and, and, and in Yiwu, in China, where ironically, the other story we were talking about, the, one of the Christmas stories that you mentioned, was based on my visit to a Christmas decorations factory in Yiwu in China, right? With awful conditions, stuff that I always imagined was being like pressed out by robots being made by hand, literally, you know, teenagers painting red paint onto plastic holly berries and Christmas decorations it was mind blowing to me. And that, that was a huge influence on a lot of my work. And, um, um, so yeah, I think that's, that stuff's still super relevant. Like, it's 
the kind of flavor around the Trump stuff, I really enjoy now. You know, the, you know the TV show and Baron and <laughs> what's the name Tequila and all that stuff. All that stuff, I love putting that stuff in. It feels like that maybe didn't happen, but then at the same time we got QAnon instead. So who fucking knows? Do you know what I mean? Which is also weirder and more toxic in some way. Um, and hey, the guy might be back if he wants to avoid going to prison. He might be back in twenty twenty four, right? So. You know, there's still time for this to happen, potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think... I think, yeah, I, think, I think there's quite a bit of stuff in there that, 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 that I still feel is, is kind of on, 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 the, on point, really. And I, there's a way in which a story like this can hold those themes in place, even when the attention of the public has, has moved, you know? Right. Like, everybody was thinking about suicides at the Foxconn factory in the early 2010s, and, but it wasn't until... Like I, that detail you read about the the suicide nets making a wavy pattern on the plastic floor, like that brings it home in such an intensely visceral way. And it reminds us that like that hasn't changed or gone away. We've just because we stopped talking about it. It's not a headline anymore, but it's, it lives forever in the story. And I think that's a kind of responsibility maybe in this kind of work to hold on to these to these stories and make sure that they're not they're not completely forgotten and that they're kind of like um yeah like that they are allowed to sort of metastasize and in, in emotionally so people can remember them and hold on to them yeah 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 i think yeah. so i think so i, I mean it's not responsibility i want on my own <laughs> but do you know what i mean but yeah it's kind of you know it's kind of i like it goes back to what you were saying as well and and it's, it's i feel i see these as making historical documents and if they are then used by people god it sounds so pretentious man historical documents being used by people. I just write stories. But, you know, I, a lot of my work gets taught at colleges and stuff, you know, in, in, in university courses, and I get invited in to talk to people, but have conversations just like this, and it's, which is really nice. And I realise that, yeah, you know, you, you're creating these kind of documents that are not... I don't get into writing fiction to, to give answers to anything. Like that. I, uh, you know, getting fiction to ask questions, which, again, is an awful cliche, and I just said it out loud on a live stream. But it's true for me, right? Do you know what I mean? And and, and I, here I am, you know, just trying to just get people to talk about shit, really, rather than to tell them what to think. Well, and, and I it think takes a lot of... Oh, really, sorry. Yeah, it, it, it really does, like, you know, center, like I said earlier, I think, that it's just, in this case, it's just a simple move of taking, like, what if this happened here? And a lot of times that is all you need to do to get the gears of, of thought turning. In fact, like, even if it seems simple, like, I feel like we could use a lot more of that. Um, and the way that this story executes it is so it, it, it's seamless and it, and it sort of, it, it tells this great story and it, and the details fill it all in. Uh, so it doesn't feel like blunt, but you know, underlying it, I think the, it, it, it is on the blunt side, which I think in this case really serves the story well. Um, and it, I, you know, I, my sense, I wanted to hear what you would say, but I, my sense is that this story could absolutely hundred percent, even down to the details, like maybe just the Tila tequila thing is the only like Baron Trump, maybe Teal hey, is man. still a looming presence. Well, so like, D'Souza's out of prison and making movies again. Who knows? Do you know what I mean? Anything could happen. <laughs> you know. We got, we got that motherfucker. I'm a prison abolitionist at heart. And I was still pleased to see that guy go down, but he's back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't 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 win them all um I, the, the other thing that i did want to ask is like it so this you know uh, story could feasibly like sort of maybe take place in the like en- extended universe of your, your novel which we haven't mentioned yet um which uh infinite detail it, it, it's 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 a great book um and it it came out a, a few years ago uh, i i know you were working on it sort of 
at the same time period when you were kind of working on some of these terraform stories uh what is the kind of interplay between the novel just a quick i'll do it really quickly infinite detail is sort of this this story about you know what happens um in in this in a society and in in the u.s and in it's but it's i mean it spans the u.s and and england but and the world eventually but five minutes into the future what happens with when the internet goes down kind of like more or less for for good or at least long enough for it to sort of wreak its havoc on all the systems that depend on it um so it's a nesting series of of uh of, of stories following different characters at, at you know different points in this occurrence um and it, it you know it's like i said it's a great book it covers all the things we've been talking about today it co- covers surveillance and supply chains and precarious work and how sort of digital systems sort of uh enable or you know rely on all that um how what you know what's the relationship between flyover country in particular it's terraform stories more broadly with with the work you did on your novel that's a good question i kind of play very kind of fast and loose with kind of canon as people say i guess is in my stuff and that like i uh this one could fit in that that universe i don't i always feel really uncomfortable with these these terms like universe and world building and stuff because I'm kind of, I kind of, yeah. yeah, I kind of, I kind of have tried to avoid doing that stuff, but also, also embrace it at the same time. It's hard to explain. Um, like I use, it's kind of shorthand for me. I might be writing a story and I don't think it's set in, in the infinite detail universe or, or whatever. Um, but then I come across, a, I want to, you know, you, I want to use like augmented reality in the story and that. And that's something in my universe which is expandable. So I just use the terms for it. And suddenly it's in that universe, right? But I, I'm, I, like people, I get asked a lot. I get asked a lot. And I, people pay me money to talk about world building. And I always feel like it's a bit of a scam. Because I feel like I'm, I don't really do a lot of world building because it's set in this world, right? Do you know what I mean? My stuff is just set in the world. I don't need to create a... Like even the stuff that I, the world building I do isn't... It comes so directly from capitalism like the abandoned, like, how do you do? the abandoned wendy's in the exactly that you return to right There's exactly like, stuff like that right you don't need to make this stuff up and people go to me like how do you you know how do you how do you predict the future so accurately which was we were discussing earlier isn't something that i you know do or set out to do but it's like i just understand how capitalism works it will fuck everything for the bottom line ultimately if you understand that uh, if you put anything, any item that comes along, a new app, a new social trend, look at it through capitalism lenses and you work out basically what's going to happen. Uh, and then add a spin of weirdness onto it, right? So that's the only kind of like world building I kind of do, I think, really. And so all my stories, up to this point at least, kind of fit into that. And I'm always trying to break away from it and then failing a little bit. Like uh, the last couple of stories I wrote for people I ended up kind of ducking back into that world and pulling out terms and stuff just because it's easy and it's and it's why re- I'm among these people I don't like as a writer I don't like reinventing the wheel right? I don't like re even re- reinventing my own work over and over again it feels feels wasteful and, and, and I'm lazy um, and if it worked the first time then it probably worked the first time for a reason I'm kind of tr- taking a break from that in my writing a little bit at the moment and trying to write something quite different um, but we'll see I might get pulled back into it um, 
I do a lot of work writing for private clients as well, for like companies and stuff and, and, and stuff. And, and that kind of is the same. It's like not really, it's not really world building because it's building on, on where we are now. So yeah, sorry, that's a bit of a random answer, but yeah. Yeah. Can, can we talk about the film work that you've done too, or is that? Is that um, uh, so I, I, my wife is a filmmaker. She's a, um, an academic here in, in Toronto. She just, just, just got a new job as uh, um, uh, assistant professor, associate professor. I can never remember which it's going to kill me. Uh, assistant professor of digital futures and education yeah, at York University. And she's like, she she makes films for that. So she she had this amazing idea a few years ago um, about making short films to explain research into surveillance that that, that the people she was working with did. And so that's something that I've been involved in that last few years wrote script for a couple of films there that she's yeah. made um also worked with liam young who i mentioned earlier who's guy I went to china with we made a bunch of short films together um Drones, right using yeah we did we did the first film the first narrative film um shot fully on drones the first narrative film shot fully with lidar scanners with laser scanners which yeah. is that's been crazy to watch that technology develop because that's something that's built into pretty much every smartphone and VR headset now. But at the time, we were using a $100,000 like huge camera rig that was a real pain in the ass to use. Um, and, so, and, and he comes from, he's an architect by trade, and he comes from um, a similar kind of background, to, to, a similar kind of approach to, to talking about the future and stuff as, as I do. So it's always great working with him. Um, yeah, but yeah, that that's that's kind of most of my film work so far has been in in, in shorts and, and and I really enjoy that. And it's yeah, you know, I write novels because I don't get anyone fucking around with me. I guess the one you can't make any money writing novels anymore, right? But the one thing you get from it is is this control that you just don't have in any other creative medium, right? You're not collaborating with anybody. That's a juicy obviously, but you know, it's every word on the page pretty much is under my control. I just have to. You know, have a, and I have really good relationships with my agent and my and my editors normally. So, so it's not like I'm, I'm fighting that. But film works very different. So I enjoy doing these short films with people like Liam or, or my wife, even. Um, and and because um, it's a collaborative process that I'm not always involved in normally, and it's nice to have that as a kind of as as a different thing to do. Um, but yeah, working. I'd, I'd love to work on feature films, but everybody, everyone I talk to about that sounds. It sounds like it's a nightmare of you know a hundred different opinions. I'm 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 working on a, another novel. Yeah, I've been doing that for like fucking six years. You know, so you know, I'm not a fast writer when it comes to novels, which is kind of why I enjoy writing them. Um, but yeah, Claire, you have anything else we should ask Tim? I mean. Just because we have an anthology coming out, we've been talking a lot about how important anthologies are for science fiction and how influential they have been in the genre. And I'm curious to know if you have any favorites or any thoughts on this. You strike me as maybe like a Mirror Shades guy or Dangerous Visions guy. Dangerous Visions also. Mirror Shades was was the one for me. Yeah, I I can remember buying that when it came out. And I don't know when that was. It was like 86 or something. It was a bit later since then. I'm super old, so I would have been like in my early teens when that came out, and that was, yeah, that was one of the books that got me into wanting to write short fiction. But even before that, my my dad's a big science fiction fan. I grew up reading a lot of short stories. He had a lot of short stories anthologies, and they were huge to me because I'd pick them up 
based on what spaceship was on the cover usually, right? You know what I mean? And, and pick them up and start reading them. And there'd be like an R.C. Clarke story. I'd be like, oh, that's okay. And it'd be a Bradbury story. I'd be like, eh, whatever, that's okay. And then an Asimov story. Okay, and then there'd be a Philip K. Dick story, and then I'd be like, what the fuck just happened? And then, yeah. you know, back to, back to a Heinlein story, and then a whatever story, and then there'd be like a J.G. Ballard story in there, and I'd be like, well, I can remember reading The Dead Astronaut by J.G. Ballard for the first time in one of these books, and it was just nothing, it was nothing like anything else I'd, I'd ever read, right? And, and he's my favourite writer now, as a kind of result of that, and probably like, yeah. along with Gibson, who you mentioned, it's kind of, they're kind of like the biggest influences on my work. And, um, so, yeah, that's another anthology. If people are looking for a good short story anthology, it's the collected J.G. Ballard short stories. It's a huge tome, massive, like, phone book of a, of a, of a collection, right? And, and it's absolutely worth picking it up and opening it random and reading something in it because he was incredible. And, and short stories, he was, like, what well, he could write in, like, a thousand words, two thousand words. It's just, just incredible sometimes. And, and decades, literally decades ahead of his time like if i can write about youtube in the 1970s man things like this like you know it's oh what if in the future everybody was their own tv station it was something he was writing about in like 1976 do you know what i mean you know and uh and, and just yeah so yeah I, look for the look for the anthologies that have got the weird stuff in like the I was just, anthology as you could yes plug plug yeah I was yeah, there you go ballard i was thinking about ballard when you were talking about just uh, drawing from your own work to potentially build out a, a cinematic universe because I think that's something that you see a lot in Ballard it's not so much about building world building it's about like examining personal obsessions over and over and over again in different exactly. forms exactly. and that's what happens inevitably when you're you know when you're a writer committed to your craft you're going to work things out a million different ways it might be like you know sort of slipstreamy and parallel university but that's kind of a canon too Exactly. I mean like the novel I'm working on now isn't really science fiction it's in that it's set in this kind of modern day and um, it's about weird stuff, but it's also got stuff about supply chains in there, and it's also got you know stuff about like social media and then and and internet surveillance and stuff that you know that I'm never gonna I'm never gonna let go of these topics. I think I've got, I keep saying to myself, I've got to stop writing about the internet. It's killing me trying to <laughs> understand, trying to understand and then write about the internet, especially at my age. Man, it's a young that's a that's a young person's game now. But like I, I can't let go of these things. They're too they're too interesting to me, and they're too too much the drivers of our current society and culture for them to be ignored. Right? It's something I, it's a cliche that I always say is that like, you know, if you're not putting, writing about social media in a contemporary novel now, then you're kind of writing historical fiction. Right? Do you know what I mean? You know, it's not contemporary anymore. So yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's water. It's part of the daily infrastructure of our lives. Um, Matthew, do you have anything? Are you still there? Yes. Well, we had a crash. Um, I noticed y'all were very professional and kept going. We are back on the air right now, uh, but we mi- but we probably lost a little bit uh, with Tim there just at the very end, uh, talking it's about legit. talking a- after talking about the um, uh, the film projects, uh, and then oh. we vanished. So I don't know. I apologize. I'll get it sorted before we do this again. But no, I think that that's a good place to end on uh, talking about Ballard and and these kinds of things. Uh, is near and dear to my heart, and I also have that giant book on my coffee table right now. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, I've got um, it on my, on my dresser. I've got the hardback. It's like weighs twenty pounds. And I've got all right. Show offs. I've got uh, <laughs> well, even better. I have because um, I used to work in a bookstore before I started doing this. I have a couple of the like sixty cent paperbacks of his. Oh, life. nice. 
like the really early novels that were, you know, what if the earth heats up and then what if it Found freezes? World and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Found yeah. World. Yes. Found World and yeah. Crystal yeah. World and yeah. Burning World, yeah. I've got some oh, of those so good. kicking around in here somewhere. But no, I think that that's a good place for us to end. So I'm going to play our music. Yeah. Thanks so All much, right. guys. It's been amazing. Yes. Thanks for joining us for kicking off this series. Yeah. And thank, thanks for having me. It's been lovely. Thank uh, you, everybody. Did we have any questions? I, I, I mean, I think we can do that next time. Uh, they're playing us off, right? <laughs> I'm trying yeah, to play. The, the hook's coming in. Chat, chat had a couple of questions. Uh, oh, they're sad. They're sad that it's over because there was technical difficulties. I promise, chat, you didn't miss a whole lot, and some of it will be recovered for the podcast later, uh, which I'm going to start putting together after this. And also, I'm going to be back in an hour with Joseph Cox, and we're going to talk about Roblox uh, back on this oh, Twitch wow. Yeah. That's, uh, okay, I might, I might have to see if I can catch that. As well. uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's all about like how it would operate in China and how it does, speaking of metaverses, right, in virtual reality. Um, Roblox is, I think, a much more interesting study. Anyway, that's all for this episode of Cyber. If you liked it, good news, we've got more coming. Over the next month, we will be celebrating the release of Terraform by having its authors hop on the show for live readings. Some of the stories have been on the site before, others are brand new. Again, Terraform drops on August 16th, so if you'd like new stories from the likes of Cory Doctorow, Bruce Sterling, and Tim Morn, check it out. Claire, Brian, Tim, thank you all so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been great. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.